In this week's episode of Non-Native Creative, I had the pleasure of speaking with Celia Saki. Celia was born in a small town in France, and her work has taken her to London, Sweden, and Japan. Celia described how her mother bringing home a computer when she was a kid kicked off everything for her. She got interested in Pokemon and in other games, and taught herself English and Japanese in order to play. This was also where her creative design interests started. She taught herself coding and how to build websites so she could share about her passions with others. After attending art school, she joined a creative agency in France and worked on domestic and international projects, including one for Cartoon Network. Following this, she spent a year in London working with Amazon, and then spent five years in Sweden working with Deloitte. Celia's work spans a variety of fields, including product design, brand experience, and creative strategy. In this discussion, Celia shared her thoughts about the acquisition of creative strategy agencies, the importance of diversity, and how to navigate the ever-changing landscape of work in creative fields. Make sure to check out the links in the description for more about Celia and her work, and take a look at the project Patreon for a transcript of this discussion and other bonus materials. Enjoy! This week on Non-Native Creative, I am very, very excited to welcome Zelia Saki to the show. Uh, she is originally from France, but has moved to London, to Sweden, and now Japan for her work, uh, and has so many interesting creative projects that span from creative strategy to project design to product design, user interface development. I am extremely excited uh, to have her on the show this week, so thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for uh, spending some time with me to talk this week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's super. Uh, I have so I have many questions uh, that I want to ask you, but uh, I like to begin every episode of this series by asking each person uh, to kind of imagine themselves as if they were a superhero, as if they were a member uh, of the X-Men. Uh, and to, if you can, if there is something, could you share kind of your origin story, the thing or the experience that happened to you that kind of kicked off uh, your activities? What was the thing that kind of got you started on the path that led you to where you are today? Do you have an origin story, something like that? Yeah, I think I do. And it's a super nerdy one. So I okay, hope that great. can bear with that. Um, Absolutely. I was born and raised in a really small city in France. Um, coming from a very modest family, my mom was a single mom. Um, and I was very lucky because in her job, she was working as an accountant in a like nonprofit organization, super small stuff, uh, helping rural people, not very exciting, uh, but at least you got exposed to computers. So when I was about 11, uh, she brought a computer home and that kind of opened the can of worms um, and triggered this origin story, which is actually all about Pokemon. So here we go. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, everything, everything starts with Pokemon. Every single thing in my life started with this. Um, the reason for that is like, so she gave me that, that computer, uh, which was an old piece of crap. But anyways, it did work and it did connect to the internet, which was pretty uh -huh. amazing. And at the time, uh, Pokemon started being quite big in France or like kids in school were playing with it. Um, and for some reason, uh, I stumbled upon on the, the concept of uh, ROM video games, so uh, illegal video games that you could download from the internet. And being, being a crafty kid, a nerdy kid, I figured out that you could download those and put them on floppy disks. 
and distribute them at school uh, to get money in exchange. Aha. The thing is, uh, those ROMs were actually available mostly in Japanese or in English. Uh, so you kind of had to figure out how to get them and where to get them from. And then, you know, at 11 in France, you do not speak English. So you kind of need to figure out how to play them as well. Um, and so that's it, how it all started for me. Like, it, this forced me to learn English uh, quite mm -hmm. quickly. I figured out like how to use the internet based on that. It drove me to actually build and design a Pokemon website that actually grew fairly big for the time. Awesome. So it taught me like about HTML and then about web design. And so I was doing this really cute Pokemon websites for my friends as well, and they wanted more. And so it all grew like around front page 96 or whatever it was called at the time. And obviously, when you start putting your fingers into Pokemon, you discover that there are many other things that Japanese culture is providing. Mm. So step by step, starting like looking at anime and other things and expanding my horizons while developing skills into digital design. So by the time I was in high school, I already knew how to actually design pretty much anything on a computer. Mm. Um, and so when the time came to actually choose education, like uni education, um, I could have gone like the full development path. This was an option, but I was already quite um, interested in more traditional arts and painting and design. Mm -hmm. I was really lucky that my mom was supportive enough to be like, okay, there are very little chances that you would get a job out of this, but do your thing, go to art school, and let's see how that turns out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I ended up like studying design a little bit accidentally because the mm -hmm. only official design schools were private schools. We didn't have the money. So I ended up in this like public art school where, yeah, it was actually very difficult for people to get a job, but mm -hmm. because we didn't have any money. It didn't really have a choice. So I just mm -hmm. applied for every internship I could um, and ended up in a digital agency. And that was the beginning of the end or the beginning of the beginning. I don't know. But that's where I started my career. Like even before I graduated, they hired me and the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome. So it was a it was through connection to the internet and connection to essentially all of these really cool, interesting things that inspired you to actually want like to create those things and share those things with other people in the beginning. Exactly. That's awesome. That is so cool. So like you said at that time too the things that you were finding were in other languages so that it was one it was inspiration to start exploring all of these creative things online but two it was that was also the thing that kicked off your interest in other languages is that correct that yeah so i've, I've always been quite interested in other languages my dad is an immigrant uh he mm -hmm. already comes from a mixed family so he's half vietnamese and half pakistani mm -hmm. um so my granddad was actually a Bollywood reseller in Vietnam before the war. It's like oh. really weird, like history in general. So my dad already speaks Vietnamese and some Pakistani and some Chinese and some English and some French. Um, so languages at home were already quite a bit of a mess. But mm -hmm. at the time when you were coming from an immigrant family, um, mm -hmm. parents were told not to teach their kids uh, to speak their are the language, the idea was that you had to focus on the language of the country you were in. Mm -hmm. So he never taught me any of these and I was extremely frustrated. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I was like, I'm gonna learn 
all the languages and I'm going to become a journalist and speak so many like languages around the world kind of. So when I started learning English, I was really excited. Um, cool. Cool. What was that like being a kid? Like you talked about how you would, you know, put games on floppy disks and give them to <laughs> give them to your classmates. What was the experience like of, of being a kid in that environment of, you know, was, was it, um, was it difficult to kind of understand some of the perspectives of your classmates or did you feel like you were able to kind of fit in pretty well? It's been both. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to say like when I was a really small kid, for mm -hmm. some reason I was a lot more brown. So I was closer to my Pakistani heritage and there was obviously a lot of racism, small town in France, so it's not the best. So like there was like some mockeries about last name or the way I looked. Um, but then growing up, I started being whiter and whiter. Mm -hmm. And today I'm like literally white passing, like people don't know. Um, so growing up, like junior high school was really hard. Um, there was a lot of bullying and like, I mean, anything, like anytime you look different, it's horrible for everybody, like in junior mm -hmm. high school. But in high school, it's just disappeared kind of. So I've been in this very weird position where I've been exposed to racism and yes, like difficulties to be integrated, especially because my, my dad, like beyond his, his origins, has quite a peculiar look. Like he has very mm -hmm. long hair and he's got piercings and stuff. So people were like, what is that? Okay. I've lived all of that. And then when my parents divorced and I ended up like being only with my mom and suddenly wider, like it became so much simpler. Like everything, oh, you know, like wow. you didn't have those things anymore. It's like, wait, what is this world? What's happening? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been, wow. It's been interesting, I feel. So you've had kind of experiences on, you know, on, I don't want to say like, you know, both sides of the spectrum, but like rather you've had opportunity, like you've through just, you know, the way that your body has changed as you've grown up, you've seen kind of different reactions to just your physical appearance then. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mm. really felt it. Uh, and especially when moving to different countries, I've like perceived those different variations of like, right. not always being perceived as Caucasian, like depending on where I was as well. Mm -hmm. Like obviously in London, I just, like blended in so easily because everybody's coming from anywhere in the world. It's kind of easy to just disappear. But in mm -hmm. Sweden, the first thing that would ever happen in any conversation was always, where are you from? Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, they were happy to hear friends. Like they took it as an answer. They never questioned beyond that. But it was the first reaction every time. Because you're like, you're not blonde and you don't have blue eyes. You're not from here. Where are you from? I see. I see. Okay. So then maybe we can kind of start to get into that. So you mentioned that as, uh, after uh, school, you joined a digital agency. Uh, so that, that agency was in London then? This one was in France. So it was like uh, okay. super, super small at the time, um, mm -hmm. purely digital player. Quite interesting because it was at the time where um, ad agencies did not have their own digital departments. Mm -hmm. so where basically the hands, like they would call us and say, we have this campaign coming, we've done all the print work, we've done this and this and that, but we do need a website. Um, and so our position was to say, okay guys, like we're gonna build that thing um, and we're gonna build, really, we're gonna build it really fast. Uh, because usually what they would do is promise the client, try to build it internally and fail because they didn't have the skills. Um, mm -hmm. So we were known in France as that one agency you call when you have to build something really cool, really fast. Mm -hmm. um, and for the longest time, I was the only designer there. So it's wow. kind of 
put me in this uh, position where I just had to figure everything out by myself. Wow. Wow. So was that, uh, you mentioned that it was the only one in France that was doing that. At that time, were you also doing, uh, were you also working with clients from, say, for example, English-speaking countries or from, from other countries that weren't uh, French-speaking? Yeah, towards the end. So in the beginning, we were mostly doing like national stuff, like French-related things. Uh, but towards the end, like my last two years or year and a half there, um, we started gaining interest from other countries because we mm -hmm. had worked with augmented reality at the time, which was quite new and quite right. exciting, right? Um, and we had done this work for Cartoon Network in France uh, that got kind of popular and their London offices were like, wait a minute, this is really cool. Like we want mm -hmm. you guys to come in and do those things and partner up with uh, some English speaking uh, technology companies to continue developing that. Interestingly enough, at the time, it was probably the only one who spoke somehow, like somewhat English. And I was not really fluent either. So we were a little bit stuck. We were working internationally, but we were all like, how do we do this? It's okay. really hard. So that, that was like what actually triggered my move to London. That was the first step. Uh, ah, okay. Was to work for that project and like develop your language skills a bit more? Uh, almost. So this project was done like around 2009, I think. And so it grew quite big. We we're working on that. Um, and there were two economical crises in France. There was one in 2008 that everybody else has felt in the world. And when we had a, like a second one in 2011, that was pretty bad. Um, and I just had my daughter and uh, the company was not doing well at all. And so they were like considering maybe how, like how things should go and they were um, kind of forced to lay off everybody. That was kind of the plan. Um, and they had offered to keep me, but under certain conditions that I didn't really feel comfortable with at the time because I had a small baby. Mm -hmm. But a crazy coincidence, like at the exact same time, I have this friend in London who's like, I hear it's kind of shit right now in France. Like, do you want to come in and work here? Um, I've heard Amazon's looking like, uh, for someone like you, um, do you want to talk to them? Sure, uh, let's do that. And the next thing I know, I'm interviewing with people at Amazon and I'm like, what? Like, I don't speak enough English for this. I'm never going to serve them. But I mean... I, I moved to London. I had a physical interview with Amazon. Um, I had a nine months old baby and two cats and I was very confused, but I still managed to get the job. And that's how I like landed in London. Um, I had never been there before. It was my first mm -hmm. time. Uh, wow. So, yeah. That's, that's really cool. That's a huge change. And I imagine it must've been that I'm sure like there were, like you said, a, a series of, of, difficult decisions probably <laughs> like you know to 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 get to that point where you're you're moving to another country where you're not quite confident in the language but like how did you find like the the I guess the the confidence to to make such a big move for yourself so I've heard that question several times and looking back I really have no idea like it feels more like a series of irresponsible decisions that at the time we were probably like what else are we going to do anyways? So mm -hmm. it was not one of those things where in the moment you're really thinking through and you feel like, yes, this is what I have to do. It's more like, yeah, let's just do that thing and see what happens next. I see. And then it just trickles down and you end up there and you're like, I 
don't know how this happened. <laughs> it was not exactly your no. most uh, thought through decision making process, but mm -hmm. it did work out in the end. So that was fine, I guess. I see. I see. So that brought you to Amazon in London. Yep. Wow. So Amazon, of course, everyone I believe is familiar at this point in time with Amazon. What, what kind of experience did you have working for them? So my role was to help them with the launch of the Kindle Fire advertising program. It's very specific, mm -hmm. like anything when you work at Amazon. Um, so they wanted to create those uh, interactive placement on this new tablet that they had, which at the time was like really, really new. Uh, so they needed people that, that could um, design things hands-on, but could also coordinate with agencies. So you needed agency experience. Uh, we were familiar with working across different countries, which I had because of that Cartoon Network project. We had launched it in four countries, so I knew how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And my role was basically to know everything there was to know about this and coordinate between countries and get European designs validated by the US, uh, which was probably the most difficult part. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes telling agencies what to do and sometimes doing the work for agencies. So a bit wow. of everything, really. Yeah, so you were lo like lots of back and forth and kind of having a foot in, in, in many different worlds, it sounds like, in that position. Yeah, it was a little bit messy. And I mean, you probably have heard about the Amazon working conditions. It is really mm -hmm. tough there. Um, and especially in that role, because I had to be available for the US at the same time as I had to be available for Europe, which meant that I basically didn't have a break during the day. Like I was connected 24 seven. Um, mm -hmm. And all of that with, at the time, like she was 10 months old. <laughs> and then growing yeah. up, like throughout her, uh, the first or second year, like the whole of her second year, I was doing this and basically not sleeping because she was not sleeping. That was mm. really, really great. Wow. Wow. So how long did you, were you able to, to keep that up? That must have been exhausting. Yeah, I survived for about a year, like just mm -hmm. a year. Um, and then right after, like, yeah, I think on month 11 or something, um, or landlord told us that they were going to sell the house in which we were. Um, and my husband's uh, company told him that they were closing the London office and that they wanted to keep him, but he had to move either to New York or Stockholm. And so we were like, okay, is this destiny? Are we being told that London's not for us and we need to move somewhere else? I mean, London is not the best place for small kids and it was a bit tough to combine everything. And I was really tired with Amazon. So we were like, okay, let's, let's consider those options. Mm -hmm. New York, probably similar to London in terms of lifestyle and challenges with a kid mm -hmm. and work-life balance. Stockholm, no idea. Let's look it up. What's going, up in, going on in Scandinavia? I mean, I don't know where you're from, but in Europe, the Scandinavian model is always praised as being, you know, this amazingly progressive right. um, set of countries where everything is perfect. Yep. So obviously, we kind of wanted to investigate if that right. was... Right. <laughs> yes, yes. Who, who would attract? Like, you're like, okay, well, I, I really want to see this. Mm. So we... We decided, okay, let's give it, let's give it a go. Uh, let's see if I can find a job because he had one, but I did not. So like, let's just find something. And if there mm -hmm. is something, let's go and see. Um, and yeah, I just did what you do in those cases, which is like contact all the recruiters you can find 
Mm -hmm. about yourself and hope for the best. Um, and they were all telling me like, oh, you don't speak Swedish. It's going to be really hard. Like don't hope for anything because yeah, like this is really tough. Yeah. There is that one company who's looking for someone like they might be interesting in your profile. They do a lot of mobile stuff. You have tons of mobile experience. Just, you know, call them and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I call them and I had very low expectations but I had this beautiful talk with their creative director at the time. It's like, I want to work with this man. He's amazing. Um, and so they told me, okay, you need to come and interview uh, in real life so that we see what, like if there is any chemistry. So I went there and I remember like rang the doorbell. There is this beautiful pregnant woman who opens the door, this beautiful Scandinavian furniture everywhere. <laughs> and like, oh my God, this is really the perfect land. Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> this is like, oh, it felt at the time, you know, opening this Disneyland kind of uh, office door. Uh -huh. uh, and so this creative director, uh, I have this first interview with him. It's like, let's not stay in the office. Let's go have a walk so that I can show you the city at the same time. And we have this beautiful walk in Stockholm, which is a fabulous city, by the way. And it's so beautiful. Like you have water everywhere, beautiful mm. buildings. And he tells me all those great things about the company and his vision. And like, I'm sold. I'm like, oh, this sounds so great. Like I really mm -hmm. want to go. Um, mm -hmm. And things happen. They tell me, okay, um, we're interested in your profile, but you don't speak Swedish. So we are going to hire somebody else for that role. Uh, but if you want to join, we can give you another role. We don't know what it's going to be. Just take it and see okay. like, if you like it. Um, and it was really fluffy. But at that time, I was still like, I want to work with that man. He's so freaking mm -hmm. brilliant. So it's okay. I'll just like do the dishes and see what happens. <laughs> okay. You know, like smart ideas. Sometimes. The thing is, the day, the day I start, I learned that this guy actually was on his way out and he's actually quit the company. So he was looking oh. for a replacement. So I'm, I'm there with now this person that has been hired for the role I wanted and not with the manager I thought I would have. And I was like, okay, that, that was not the plan. That right. is what I expected, but let's make the most out of it. Um. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so in all, through all of this, like you've, at this point in time, then you've moved your whole family to Sweden, yep. your husband's job. You've found this job for yourself that immediately you're like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So, I mean, and obviously now we're talking from Tokyo, <laughs> uh, but what, what kind of happened in the, in the meantime then? So uh, were you able to, to continue and to like to gain some experience from the role that you ended up having? Uh, in that company? So what happened is the guy they hired for the role I wanted actually was fired <laughs> very quickly. Okay. When they were comparing the work we were both doing, they were like, uh, okay, well, no, maybe, maybe, yeah, she doesn't speak Swedish, but she brings something. Um, and the, the team, we had such a great connection at the time and she's like, yeah, everything just worked in my favor because they were like, this works much better. Mm -hmm. And this guy didn't work out so well. So they actually gave me the job after, what, six months or something? Wow. Um, cool. And I had, I mean, I've been very lucky because the, the partners of that company, uh, a bunch of Swedish guys, as I like to call them, like my white male, <laughs> my, yeah, like privileged white male friends. Um, 
they saw, they saw something in me that maybe other companies didn't. And really quickly, like I think a year in or so, they asked me to become a partner in the company. Um, wow. So they, they opened the door to something that I had no idea existed, uh, which mm -hmm. is like sitting on a management group uh, to that level, um, understanding like how a company is being run in Sweden and quite a big company. And um, really quickly after that, we were acquired by a massive consulting firm. So we were acquired by Deloitte and that opened like, a universe that I had no clue about. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, management consulting is not exactly something that was on my radar. Uh, mm -hmm. Coming from a very modest background, I didn't know it existed. Uh, mm -hmm. I had no clue. And so when we were acquired and I discovered all those people in suits doing merger and acquisitions and auditing and doing all those very complex things, it's like a little bit flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. But also since I had no idea, I just stepped in there being like, hey, that's me. Let's do things together. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. It was a little bit foolish and naive, but it, was, it worked out really well because they were like, you are really different from us. You're a bit <laughs> yeah. scary. You're a little bit intense, but also maybe, maybe this will work. Um, uh -huh. And so Deloitte actually gave me a quite interesting platform. Like they would send me to talk to partners in the UK and to explain to them what creative thinking was and mm -hmm. how we did digital products and those kind of things. They put me on stage in some events that I really never thought I would speak to. Like mm -hmm. this, um, there is a business forum in the north of Sweden, which is uh, called the, the Nordics Davos. So it's like mm -hmm. this thing where politicians come and speak, bankers come and speak. And I came to speak out of nowhere, uh, speaking right after like one political candidate to Swedish prime minister roles, those kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. so <laughs> it was really random and I felt wow. a little bit out of place, uh -huh. but also I ended up spending five years in that company and they were like five amazing years, like mm. crazily challenging um, at Max, the team that I ran was 20 people uh, coming from all ways of life. Um, some Swedish, but a lot of international peeps in there. Um, and the connections were, were great. Like I really enjoyed every minute of that role. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, like honestly, this happy accident of ended up ending up in this uh, Swedish company was just the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow, but I mean, from from everything that you've uh, that you've shared so far, it sounds like you were you were uniquely and perfectly positioned to be kind of that that in between space person, the person who could uh, go between not just you know this kind of creative uh, perspective and this more maybe like business or like management related perspective, but also you had the ability to like go you know across languages and across you know countries. Like you had all of that experience. You were the perfect. I, I could see like how, you know, your ability to go in so many different circles was, I'm sure, like, extremely, extremely important at that time and probably still continues to be. So five years there of, yep. of I'm sure, building a, a, an incredible, must be, I imagine, network of people all across the world and gaining all of this experience in this role in, as this person that's going between so many different facets of, of creativity and of management and so on. So how did this bring you to, to Tokyo then? And are you still doing kind of a similar role here? So going back to Pokemon, you know, <laughs> I've always sure. been 
a Japanese nerd somehow. Um, uh -huh. And obviously, when you start moving abroad, you like people are asking you, "Oh, when are you moving to Japan?" And you're like, "Nah, you know, like moving to Japan is really difficult. My comment is the language is not good enough, and you know, Japan women digital, not really, right. not really possible." Um, right. And one thing that's amazing about Sweden is the amount of holidays you get a year, like six uh -huh. week holidays plus, plus parental leave and those kind of things. So every mm -hmm. year for five years, I would go to Japan about a month a year. And every time I would come back, everybody was like, so when are you moving to Japan? <laughs> and every time I would say, mm, not happening. It's great, yeah. but not happening. Mm -hmm. um, and one gloomy winter uh, day in Sweden, I mean, they are pretty horrible. Uh, the sun goes down at two o'clock and you get a little bit depressed. Oof. Yeah, like, I remember my husband being like, oh, like, we just came back from Tokyo and he's like, I, I, can't, I can't do the weather anymore. Like, we need mm -hmm. to do something. And I got really angry because i was like but you're not doing anything you're just complaining about it like you want to move to tokyo let's move to tokyo let's just send emails to recruiters like we've done in the past and do it and he's like no but that's not really possible like ah are we gonna do this well we've we've done it like, we've, we've done, done it, it. yeah <laughs> here you are <laughs> like, just do it like so we, we sent emails to recruiters uh he works in tech like he's a cto so obviously like in two minutes almost he had a job that was really annoying um <laughs> i i obviously struggled a little bit more because my profile is so weird that when i send my resume people are like what is that like is this right true yeah like, what they, do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what do you do? Which is like a very classic question. Um, yeah. And so, like, I couldn't find anything, which I knew would happen. All recruiters were like, oh, you could have this junior UX designer position. And like, dude, like, what? I'm, I'm a Deloitte partner. Um, <laughs> Deloitte actually made me an offer uh, in, in Japan, but I felt like, mm, I like work-life balance, probably not the greatest thing there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, right. <clears throat> and so for some weird reason, I approached like an executive recruiter based in Hong Kong, like a French mm -hmm. woman. And I felt like she's French. She's a woman. She works in Asia. Like worse come worse, she can at least tell me how she did it and mm -hmm. what I should do. And so mm -hmm. I sent her this message being like, hi, you don't know me, um, but I'm doing this thing and you probably know something I need to know. So if you have one piece of knowledge to share, can mm -hmm. you? And her answer straight away was, I, I'm not going to share something with you. I'm going to put you in touch with somebody because one of my best friends is actually running a um, advertising agency network and your profile is so freaking weird that I think he's going to love it. Mm. And yeah, he did. So great. So I met that guy on Skype, really weird conversation. Uh, <laughs> Like, he's like, I have no idea what you do. Sounds great. Let me put you in touch with the guy in Tokyo and see what he says. And he, put me, he puts me in touch with the guy in Tokyo who has no idea about this. Like, why are you even applying here? Um, I, don't, I don't know what you do, but let's talk about life. So we talk about life one mm -hmm. time, two times, three times, four times. This went on forever. I had like... Two hours meeting at six in the morning in Sweden with that guy on a regular mm -hmm. basis for like a month and a half, I think. Is this and a? Is, so was this a person? Was this a, a Japanese person you were speaking no, to for this? 
is British, uh, but he's been okay. in Japan for so long that he's literally Japanese, I think, at, by now. Huh. Um, I, think, I think he just likes to talk a lot. And I like him for that. He's really great. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> and so after a while, like after a month and a half of just talking about really random things, uh-huh. he's like, you know what? Like, okay, okay, I'm going to hire you. Uh, just come in. Really? And, and do work here. Because uh, it sounds like what you're doing could be interesting. Hmm. And so I started in this pure advertising agency, working side by side with um, the head of data science, mm-hmm. trying to build up something that would be a hybrid between user experience design and data science. And how do we mash those things together mm-hmm. so that you know, it creates new type of types of offering for clients. Um, mm-hmm. And I had no idea what I was doing as very often in those situations, but I met great people. Uh, it was a great company, but it was a little bit tough because the, again, work-life balance in Japan is difficult as we know in advertising. Right. Even more difficult. Yes. Yes. So there was that. And then there was a big glass ceiling that was really problematic to me like mm-hmm. as much as I love this company and the people in there I could see that getting any management position which is what I really love would be mm-hmm. difficult right so it, it just I was a little bit disheartened be like yeah okay this is this is nice but this is not gonna lead me anywhere in my career um, mm-hmm. where I feel like okay I'm gonna do the great things I want to do um, and so at the same time um, the my husband's boss who's running a startup called Virtusize uh, called me and was like, hey, <laughs> hey, do you want to do things? Uh, do you want to work in a startup for a change? Um, and I can guarantee that you're going to work a lot less. Like, let's do 32 hours a week, but mm-hmm. I pay you more. Like, hey. That's, uh, that's hey, a hard offer to say no that, to. That sounds good. And it's like, you're going to be part of the management group. Uh, you're going to have shares and you can do whatever you want. Like, okay, let's do that mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which is how I ended up working in a startup instead, which is quite a big departure from what I was doing before. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's also challenging in many different ways. Uh, and it's giving me the... Yeah, the foot in the door of what I want to do, which is like build teams and build companies and like, yeah, mix all of those things with like data and design and people and experiences, um, which you can't really do in maybe traditional agencies. Like it's a little bit too boxed in. I see. Okay. So now I can do all those things together uh, and do whatever I want, which is literally the story of my life. Uh, Cool. (laughs) What I'm looking for. So that's maybe like the, the common thread that's run through all of these experiences then is what do I want to do and how do I do it, you know? Yep, kind so of. Looking for a way, well, one, one way to understand it perhaps. So this is your, your current uh, work right now is working yep. on uh, Virtue Size. Yep. Could you share a little bit? What is that, what is that project? Yeah, so Virtue Size is actually a Swedish project. So, the, you know, like the circle comes to an end. It was created a while ago by a bunch of Swedish guys. And initially, it was just a plugin that lets people find clothes um, based on items they've already purchased. So it's looking at like, oh, you've purchased that pair of jeans. Well, look at this one because it's the exact same size. So it's going to fit you exactly the same one, Uh, which is, you know, it's very clever. Um, 
And then when it was launched, it actually kind of took the e-commerce market by storm, got installed on many, many big brands, and started collecting a lot of data about like what people wear, what they don't wear, uh, body mm -hmm. types, and those kind of things. And so when I came in, the idea was like, okay, we do have all of this. What do we do next? Uh, so my project in this company at this stage, on top of building a strong design team and a strong design culture, is to understand what we can do for users and for retailers uh, that is using all of that beautiful data to make shopping experiences a little bit better online and a little bit mm -hmm. smoother and smarter and nicer so that we create happy shoppers, how we mm -hmm. call it. Um, so at this stage, I've been designing with the team um, a series of products that help people find the right clothes, be it by style or by size or by price, um, regardless of their genders and regardless of their body types. So we're mm -hmm. really trying to create a product that, you know, makes shopping online less painful and just a little bit more joyful. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a small step in just making sure that people are a little bit happier uh, and therefore shop in a more sustainable way so that they don't okay. shop, you know, for like 20 items when actually they just need one, but they need the perfect okay. one. So that's, that's what we're doing. Um, just I like, see. It's just a little, just a little, little thing, but hopefully that makes a tiny bit of a difference in the life of some people. Right. Not, so not how is, how is something like that? Uh, like, um, I'm, there's a, pro, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's a product or if it's like a, a, a part of the shopping experience. There was something that was released uh, from Japanese shopping company Zozo a while yep. ago that was like this bodysuit. They said, put on this bodysuit. We'll send you this bodysuit for free that has all these dots on it. You know, take some pictures of yourself and our software will scan you and help you find just the right clothing. And to the best of my understanding, that didn't work very well. No, it did not. <laughs> as, far as, as far as I could understand about that, uh, that service, like everybody was really excited about it and it didn't really work very well. So how is, how is VirtuSize approaching the same issue? So yeah, this all business is quite interesting because I think in the end it was just a PR stunt, right? Like it didn't really work. People didn't receive mm -hmm. it. Um, and it was not that accurate anyway. Um, what we are doing is like trying to base ourselves on something that's a little bit more rational, which is like you already own this and we know that and you know it fits you. So let's look at everything that's cut the same way, which is at least a little bit less risky, but obviously as we're innovating, as we're bringing new technologies, um, we're looking at image recognition, uh, which is probably going to be the next big step for us. We're, do, we're doing a lot of it already, uh, but mm -hmm. not as part of the shopping experience, but more as the, in the back of what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. So we are obviously looking at all those things. Um, honestly, I don't believe forcing people to put on clothes or even taking pictures of themselves is not super smooth at this stage. Um, so we are investigating those things. We're building them internally, trying them out. But at this stage, we haven't found anything where we feel like this is actually more accurate than what we already do. And it's mm -hmm. easier than what we already do. I see. I see. So For as you said, kind stay. of using like using uh, the technology that's available without having to make some kind of like, as you said, like, you know, PR stunt or asking people to do like these inaccurate things in the hope that it'll help them somehow. Exactly. I see. So kind of operating on, you know, this existing knowledge that each consumer individually has about themselves and what they like, yep. and then kind of building on that. That's very cool. And, and the project, uh, 
should I, should I call it a project, an app? What is the, what is the best way to, to talk about we, it? We call it a product or we call it a service. It depends. Okay. Technically, it's a service with a lot of products underneath. But okay. that doesn't really matter. Is it something that, like, if I wanted to use it, like, today, is it something that I could go and find for myself? Yeah, or is yeah, it something? Yeah. Okay, okay. And it's available in a couple different languages. It is. So it is available uh, in Japan, but it's available in some European retailers as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some in Korea and we have some in Taiwan. So we, we are covering a little bit of Asia. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you can try it. We have several retailers with it. Um, most of them Japanese brands that you might have heard about. Uh, we are on Marui, for example, which is mm -hmm. like one of our main investors. Um, we are on uh, United Arrows, um, you know, a lot of Japanese brands like this. In Korea, we're on Uniqlo. Uh, so it's slightly uh, more well-known maybe for mm -hmm. international audiences. Um, but the current product that is in the market is the previous iteration. It's, we haven't released yet what I've been working on because it's been so big that it's been cooking for about a year now. And we're actually going to release it on Monday on United Arrows. So we're a little bit oh, like, wow. rust that it's going to work. Oh, um, cool. Well, keep an, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Interesting. So we'll uh, see. Uh, because now we are introducing, on top of this purchase history concept, we are introducing um, body measurements. So we are letting people create silhouettes of their own body based mm -hmm. on big data. So we're asking you for some basic information and then we can calculate what your body shape is probably like based on the bazillion of information that we do have about bodies and consumers uh, in Japan particularly. So mm -hmm. we can actually have a fairly accurate representation of what you look like. And then obviously you can adjust it if you have like parts of your body that you feel like are slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. But it's something that we've never done before. So. We are quite excited to see if that's going to help for people who actually want to purchase maybe something different mm. or, yeah, are looking for new ways to find clothes. That's very cool. And it also, like, just, I mean, thinking a bit further down the road, too, like, there's, there's a huge uh, movement around the world, too, especially, like, in places like the U.S. right now towards, you know, uh, more um, conscious um, decisions by fashion designers and by companies that are making clothes to suit different body types you know whether you're uh whether you're uh, you know someone with a lot of curves or someone who's a, you know got you know not as many curves or whatever so it's helping maybe people to make those you know to make those connections uh with people who are you know able when i say people i mean like designers and companies that are creating things that are maybe suited uniquely to each of us so that's really really cool i'll, I'll keep an eye out for that that's i mean that that's something that I too struggle with. Absolutely. is an online shopper. I'm like, do I know that this is going to fit me? I can check the measurements if they're available there, but you know, it's hard to, it's hard to make that decision without putting it on your body. So very cool. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, but this actually, this topic leads me to one of the things I most wanted to discuss with you today. Uh, you talked about uh, how when you were working uh, in Sweden uh, for Deloitte, they were sending you to all of these, you know, various uh, places to, to, do talks and to connect with uh, people from a variety uh, of countries uh, working in you know different parts of, of a variety of industries as well and um, I mentioned before we started recording that I'd uh, checked out your talk called non-creatives uh, that's available uh, on your website uh, and for people to watch on YouTube as well uh, 
you talk a lot about kind of this um, this idea of these so-called non-creative people, like the, the consultants and the, the system engineers and so on, is kind of taking over the creative industry or uh, buying out uh, creative agencies and so on. Um, but as you've described in this talk, like you you've you've had that experience. You were in an agency that was acquired, you know, by something else, and you were put in this role where uh, you had to work with, as you described, the people in the business suits, you know. So thinking about it from the perspective of creatives who are maybe entering this context, like what do you have some kind of advice? For those people, for the ones like uh, who are maybe worried, they're like, oh gosh, I've spent so much time developing this creative skill set and I'm going to get in there and it's going to be, you know, taken over by uh, these people in suits that just want to uh, make me more efficient or they just want to uh, take my idea and uh, mass produce it, you know what's going to happen to my ideas. Like, do you have any kind of advice for creatives who are in that, that position now? Yeah, this one is a difficult one because depending on which suits acquire your company, your experience is going to be drastically different. Um, there are, strangely enough, not that many players in that field of management consulting, right? They are, we, we call them the big four because they are mostly four, um, plus a couple of like smaller firms that lay around. Uh, and they've been very aggressive in acquiring mm -hmm. creative firms and UX firms and development firms. And at the time I did that talk, it was... It was so intense. There were so many acquisitions that people were freaking out all over the place. Um, and so even before we got acquired, I was regularly um, asked to do those talks and so on. But after the acquisition, people were like, we wanted to come and talk, but we we're really worried because like, we, we don't know if you still fit in the landscape of uh, creativity and advertising and those kind of things. But uh -huh. yeah, like do you think you still have something to say? That was pretty much the, the question. Like, and you're like, uh, the job has not changed that much. Um, yeah. But indeed, like the, depending on who buys you, your experience is widely different. So I think we got really lucky um, compared to maybe others to be bought by Deloitte. I think they are approaching the problem differently and they could still do better. Um, but what usually happens is you, you have two scenarios, really. One is they understand the value that the creative agency environment brings to the process and therefore mm -hmm. they respect it uh, and they actually encourage it and they bring maybe some funds and some financial stability that not all agencies unfortunately have. Mm -hmm. And so they, they just enhance what's already there. They bring you more data. They bring you people to do business models, we can, which can help with really big creative ideas, right? Like when, when you're like, oh, we could do this campaign, but also we could do that thing that is long lasting. Well, they can help you do that. Uh, and in those scenarios, as a creative, if you manage to go above the hurdle of thinking like this person is really different from me and um, I, I need to adapt to their lingo and I need to adapt to how they behave, which is like really, really different from what you're used mm -hmm. to, then you can really do great things. If you're in the other scenario, which is you're acquired by a company who just give a shit about um, like creative culture and just feel mm -hmm. like they're buying skills, the, the um, outcome is probably really different. Uh, I've seen it as well in other companies acquired by other big fours. Like they just come in, they change everything in terms of process, they change everything in terms of hoverhead, uh, which obviously creates something different. Um, 
and then the, the creative output is very difficult. And for creatives in those situations, I feel like, I mean, you can try. You can always mm -hmm. try to do the most that you can with the situation, but you should not like work in an environment where you feel like your your creative um, thinking is being completely diminished. That's useless. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, yeah, it's a dual question with a dual answer. It's like depends. Okay. okay. Where you end up. Okay. Great. Well, thank you. That's I think that's extremely important to consider. Uh, absolutely, like the the specifics of the environment <laughs> in which you might get you know tossed. Uh, then, kind of in connection to that, you've kind of hinted at you know if you find yourself in that environment. Uh, or even if you're maybe like a freelancer working independently, a creative freelancer, uh, if you if you kind of get to, into the situation where you're like, I don't have, there's no one around me that I can work with, or uh, I'm just kind of plopped into this situation where no one is thinking creatively, like, uh, I don't know how to network, or I don't know how to further develop my skills, like, uh, do you have any advice for what to do or not do in those kinds of situations for someone mm. who's just kind of feeling uh, you know, lack of inspiration or like they don't have a, a, a place to, you know, they don't have an outlet in some way. No, this one, I guess is a difficult one because I've, I've seen it happen many times, right? People end up in, in companies or places that maybe offer some financial safety, but are really like drown, like, yeah, droning the life out of you and just like, yeah, making you miserable. Um, it's a difficult one because you can't tell people to just like quit their jobs. That's not, that easy um, and it's not a really good piece of advice in the end, even though they should consider it if they're really miserable, I feel. Um, but in this day and age, we are so lucky to have the internet at our disposal and there are so many communities out there of people um, that can actually give you the outlets you're looking for. So my advice in that case is to start looking for, for peers out there um, to discuss work, to review work, but also to maybe do like design that you feel or creative work uh, that you feel just matters a bit more. Um, I've noticed that when you get really disheartened by a job, it's usually because A, you lack control on the situation, on the environment, but also B, you're doing things that are just meaningless. You don't feel like you're doing any anything that brings value. Um, and so there are so many ways today to help when you have hard skills. Like if you're a designer or if you're a copywriter or a creative of any sort, like you have bazillions of associations that do need these skills to do things um, and where you will have the creative outlet and on top of that, you'll make a difference. So my, yeah, my biggest piece of advice is like when you don't know what to do, you need to do creative work that excites you and make you feel like you're doing something useful, go to smaller NGOs and do that work because at least it changes something. Mm, I see. Especially Great. right now. Uh, oh my goodness. Yes. That is a whole, that is a whole conversation that is, needs to happen. Absolutely. And I'm sure we could discuss in depth. Uh, but uh, to, just because we're kind of coming to near the end of our time here, there's just a couple of other questions that I wanted to address. Um, one of which is kind of relating, I think, to uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, in your discussion, uh, in your in the talk that was recorded, and also I think you've kind of touched on it a couple times here. You mentioned uh, the idea, you mentioned uh, a solution or part of a solution uh, for working in these environments where creativity is kind of thrust against these, you know, 
uh, non-creative uh, roles. And you, you suggest that uh, diversity of thought uh, is very important, that uh, we need to have not just, you know, diversity uh, in terms of, as you mentioned, you know, like gender or sexuality or uh, in race or ethnicity. Uh, while those are essential and important to discuss, you're also talking about diversity of thought uh, as being central. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and why that kind of uh, diversity is also important? Yeah, yeah I, I think I still want to repeat that the overall diversity is the prerequisite for this to even work. It's like, mm -hmm. there are, because sometimes you do see people being like, well, we're diverse because we have people from diverse backgrounds. And you're like, no, that's not, that's not what it is. Like you do need the diversity in obviously gender, obviously sexual orientation, obviously race, because else like it's not going to even happen. But right. what, we are, what we're usually observing, be it in like ad agencies, consulting firms, or startups, or technology companies, it's the same scenario all over again. It's people that have a very similar um, education. They come from the same schools. They've usually networked with the same people. Um, they read the same books and they expose themselves to the same media bubble. So it's, it is an echo chamber. Um, and it's a little bit difficult because the ideas that come from there are very formatted in like, yeah, a single stream of um, consciousness almost. And so forcing yourself to have people who come from very different backgrounds, very different ways of life is, is really important. And the, the problem with the recruitment as it is today is that it's still like, yes, it does look a little bit more than it did before, even though like it's yeah, not great yet. It does look a bit gender, it does look a bit race, but still it is like, oh, let's only hire people who are uh, educated. Let's only hire people who've got like this beautiful resume with no breaks in between. And that doesn't work. Like if you really want a powerful team on top of everything else, you also need to look at people who dropped out of high school because they've lived a completely different lives and they've, mm -hmm. they've seen something you haven't. You also need people that have taken a two years break because you know, they went to raise their children or they decided to like do something different, um, travel the world, help, I don't know, people who needed like medical care those people struggle to find, uh, the struggle to go back into employment. And it's such a loss when you're looking at creative environments because we don't need more tech bros who've all been to the same school. We don't need more creatives that are very excited about like award shows and, and those kind of things. We need people that have lived real, real lives and have something to say about this because then they do bring, I mean, sometimes you get the slaps in the face that you need. Um, and I don't think we get enough of those in those jobs. Like you need to be confronted to uncomfortable situations to do great work because then you can solve real problems. Um, the fact that it feels like everybody's suddenly discovering that, oh my God, like black people are oppressed. You're like, hey guys, this has been like this forever. Uh, if you had had more black people in your teams, you would know all about this and you would maybe have done something about it before. So mm -hmm. it's great to do something now. It's great to commit to diversity now, but it's too late almost. And so it comes with hiring policies of making sure you do get like, even the people that are not the most employable, um, like beyond all of the other diversity criteria. And it uh, relies upon building a culture internally that also promotes that and gives space mm -hmm. to those people who've never been given a chance to speak before. Um, 
to give them space to express themselves. Because what mm. happens if you hire them is that usually they get a little bit quieter, they don't know. Um, I've been in that position of feeling like I was out of place and didn't know what to say, or I should mm-hmm. not speak because maybe I'm not relevant. Like, especially at Deloitte, for example, I was always like, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's Yeah, that. yeah. When you're thrust into a situation like that, like, uh, I mean, I, this is something that I've, I've personally experienced and on a small scale, like working, I, I worked for um, architects in a university for a while as their, you know, editor, as their translator, not an architect, but, you know, I'm in the role of helping them and kind of going, oh gosh, do I have a voice? That's a fraction yeah. of what, you know, so many other people experience in organizations uh, around the world. And uh, it's, it's hard to gain your voice and also feel comfortable using it, I think. Uh, so creating environments where that's, for, where both of those are possible long-term is key. Um, Another just related to what you've just been talking about, I think, um, concern that I've kind of heard here and there, especially uh, in Japan, is that people consider, uh, I won't, of course, not everybody, but uh, consider kind of uh, diversity and uh, inclusion as trends. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this is what we should do now. So I'll do it. I'll jump, I'll jump on this because it's trendy because everybody's doing it right now. It's like, no, yep. like this is, this is not a trend. It's not just, okay, well, we'll hire you and we'll put your picture on our website to show that we're a diverse organization. It's like, oh my gosh, it's, that's just such the wrong approach to consider any of this is a trend, exactly as you were talking about, you know, like right now we're having this discussion uh, in, uh, in a moment of a big uprising in the US uh, around the Black Lives Matter movement. And the idea that we should just, you know, deal with it just this one time and then we'll go back to normal or whatever is just, uh, it's, it's the wrong way to, to think about it. It's the wrong way to have thought about it. Uh, it's not just, you know, you don't just put a bandaid on the solution. That's not, that's not the approach that's, not that's necessary works. here. It's, it's going to require, uh, just a complete change in the way that many aspects of, uh, our, our, our lives happen and our countries are run. And it's changed to make sure that everybody or to work towards ensuring that everybody has, you know, has a voice in, in their jobs and in their communities. So that's something that's bothered me for a long time is the <laughs> idea that, oh, diversity is, oh, that's easy. We'll just throw, you know, a woman in the lineup or we'll throw this Asian person in, in, our, yeah, in our lineup, you know, how do, how do, how do we all work together as allies? You know, how, do, how, what is the best way to support, you know, our, our global community members? What should we do? Uh, how do we do it better as well? Yeah, I, I just I just hope that, that it's a it's a time when all of us learn to to do better and to be better and uh, support one another in constructive ways. But uh, we have spent almost an hour, I believe, now talking. I know, <laughs> so I'm so sorry. <laughs> the time flew by, actually, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, hearing your your story and getting your advice uh, and your insights. I want to end with maybe just two more questions. Uh, because we talked a lot about uh, your story uh, and uh, the work that you're doing now. And I asked you a bit about uh, creative uh, and uh, non-creative relationships and a bit about technology. I want to finish one with a question about uh, travel and uh, how uh, you kind of dealt with or experienced your various moves around the world. Um, If I'm a creative person, a young creative person that's thinking about going to another country uh, or using my second or third language uh, to do something creative. 
uh, but I'm not sure like what to do or I'm a little bit afraid. Like, do you have any advice uh, for that person considering moving out of their you know, hometown or moving out of their home country? Is there anything they should do or anything that they should not do? Oh, that's such a difficult one. Mm. Well, like one thing that usually happens when you move abroad is at first, the first couple of months are very excited, right? Like you've done it. Maybe you struggled, like hopefully you prepared well, because honestly, like unprepared moves are the worst. So like you've really looked up everything you had to know about the country, about all the paperwork, like please check social insurance, those kind of things. Like I've seen so many people moving in and not checking those things. Do that, like do your homework. But then you come in, you're very happy, it's exciting. And then on month three or a little bit after, you realize you're alone and you realize you have no friends and it's kind of, it's kind of difficult to deal with. Maybe you do have friends from before, that's great, but it still feels like your social circle just shrinks so fast. My, <laughs> my advice to survive that bit without getting too depressed is find that one place where you go all the time. Like it can be a bar, it can be a restaurant, it can be a public space, it can be whatever. And then just go there all the time, every week, at least once a week until somebody recognizes you and then chat to that person. Because damn, it's hard to make friends when you're growing up. Like I see my daughter, she just talks to random people, but I'm like, don't do that. Um, but, but if you go to the same place all the time, they recognize you. And after a while, they kind of become proxy friends. So they're not mm -hmm. going to be the long lasting, deep relationships that you need, but they will bring you a sense of social comfort that will give you the confidence to build relationships where you need them. It's mm -hmm. just like tricking your brain and thinking you're not alone. <laughs> it's really sad, but it yeah. does work. It does work in like yeah. sense of uh, familiarity, which is really needed when you move anywhere else in the world. Right. Your hometown right. Or awesome. That's a very good tip. I think, and I think it's one that <laughs> we can always remember actually too, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, then the last, the last thing that I want to make sure to ask uh, is where can listeners and viewers find you and find your work? Where can they connect with um, the things that we've been discussing uh, in this talk today? So, like, as you mentioned, I have a couple of talks on YouTube. Um, I don't publish my work so often anymore because I don't think it matters so much. Uh, but I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, so mm -hmm. my handle is I love graphics. It's very old. It dates from my high school days almost. Um, and on Twitter, I share, I used to share a lot about design and creativity. These days, I'm so angry that I share about political activism, but that's also interesting, I guess. Uh, but I'm always happy to talk about anything that's creative related. Um, I have been mentoring a lot of people in the past, especially women and especially minorities. And that's something that I want to continue doing. So I'm actually considering doing something here in Tokyo at a slightly bigger scale. So if anybody is interested in that, cool. uh, please get in touch in any way, shape or form uh, and okay. we can do anything like at this stage, really anything. Cool, great. Okay, well then I'll put, the, I'll put links to your website and to your Twitter feed. Yep. Uh, in the YouTube and That's in right. the podcast descriptions so that people can find you and connect with you and check out. Yeah, the mentoring uh, thing sounds cool. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, very, very nice. Very nice. So I will wrap it up here. But uh, if there's any final thought that you want to that you want to toss out there, be uh, my guest. If not, <laughs> no problem. It's always so difficult. Yeah, there is one thing that I actually kind of wanted to like put in this this interview with you and I didn't manage because there was not like a, a moment for that but okay. there is one piece of advice that I can give to people uh, is that 
try not to do all the things maybe, but do the right things because I've been guilty of trying to do everything and it didn't work out. Um, and I had this massive burnout that kind of was an eye-opening experience of like, oh my God, actually you're not forced to please everyone else. And for me, that's been a life-changing moment. It's like, hey, you actually don't need to do all those things. Just need, like, you just need to do the ones that really matter. And sometimes you just need to really ponder what really matters. It takes about 15 minutes maybe, but just do it. And don't, don't do everything. So famous Excellent. last words. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this talk. Uh, and I wish you all the best in everything that you've got going. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Non-Native Creative. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you never miss an interview. Also, please make sure to stop by the project Patreon at patreon.com slash non-nativecreative. Patrons can get access to Patreon-only discussions, bonus behind-the-scenes media, interview transcripts, and access to patron-only live streams. Your support will help make sure the series can continue to share exciting, interesting stories from creative people working across borders. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.